This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors of Michigan politics and government. Coronavirus on a rampage. All the conversation about coronavirus this week. Governor Gretchen Whitmer gave her long-anticipated announcement about the future of kindergarten through 12th grade education in Michigan through at least the end of this academic year. And we are fortunate to have with us the executive director of the Michigan Association of School Boards, Don Wotruba. Don, thanks for being with us. Oh, you're welcome, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Well, what was your reaction to what Gretchen Whitmer said this week? You know, the governor had worked closely with many of the education associations in preparing that order, so we weren't unsurprised by it. We understand the difficulty for families and parents in this space, but at this point, health uh, and the safety of our citizens and the kids in our schools and the teachers in our schools had to be foremost um, in this order. And you know, the, the good thing, I think, for us is we've seen the education community really stepping up in this crisis, providing meals to kids, providing meals to families in their communities in some cases. And I have the same expectation uh, that our teachers in our schools will put together education plans that, you know, that are going to try to meet the same quality that they were getting when their kids were in school face-to-face. We know it won't be exactly like that, but Um, I have great faith in our educators that they will do everything they can um, to keep education going, you know, through the end of the school year. Let's make things clear to our listeners. Uh, As I understand it, the governor basically said, we're going to close all school buildings, which have been closed since the middle of March, through the end of the academic year, through the end of May or whenever the year ended for any school. But learning can go on online. There can be direct over video online, however it's done, contact between teachers and students. But doesn't it depend on an individual school district? And there are 550-some in Michigan as to how they implement this? That's correct, Bill. And actually, with charter schools in Michigan, we have over, we have over 800 local districts now. And what the governor did, it's not can, it's really a requirement that every school will provide an education plan um, submitted to their ISD to get approved to provide education uh, into June for their kids. So we're expecting every school will do that. And uh, the the thing about this order, because we know not everybody has a computer at home, not everybody has high-speed access, um, whether it be in rural areas and urban centers, And what they're calling it is really remote learning. And I've already heard of some rural school districts um, in Michigan, and I had seen it where some other states, because a number of states have already issued a similar order, um, where they're delivering education packets once a week by school bus, dropping them off at kids' houses, and then teachers can do teleconferences if they don't have video Internet capabilities. So each school will approach it differently depending on what they hear Um, from their parents and kids about connectivity and other things. So some might be all online, others will be a hybrid of that, and others may um, try to do it all through 
um, dropping off packets and just using telephone conferences or something along those lines. But one size doesn't fit all, and I think that was the appropriate approach to this. Don Wadruba, we're running out of time here in this academic year. I mean, we're in early April. Is there a deadline for school districts to submit their plans? And is there a deadline for the intermediate school districts to approve them or reject them? I mean, by the time that process is used up, there may be only about a month left in school. Yeah, at this point, most schools run into early June. Uh, in the order, April 28th, school must start happening in districts. I expect many of them will start prior to that. Um, some have already been doing this, so for some, the ramp-up will be very short. And they did make it so that the ISD approval is only the ISD superintendent. Um, you know, often you would want a school board to make that approval, but there's just not time to wait for a school board meeting. And, of course, with public distancing, that's hard. So it should be a quick process for the ISDs. Applications will be out to districts next week. Uh, but the deadline is that all teaching will begin by the 28th of April. Is there any difference of opinion between the Michigan Association of School Boards, of which you are executive director, and the Michigan Association of School Administrators, and for that matter, the Michigan Education Association, the teachers, the other school groups out there, maybe the secondary school principals, are you all pretty much on the same page in your reaction to what the governor has announced this week in her executive order about this? Yeah, absolutely we are. This is a time where if we're not all marching in the same direction trying to support kids and teachers and our school folks, you know, you shouldn't really be in the business. And um, we've set aside whatever differences you have over the years um, to say let's do what we have to do to make this happen. And so I haven't seen any out of the school groups, um, no matter what side, management, labor, charter school, like non-public schools, we're all saying this was an order that sadly had to happen, and we're going to do our best to make sure that it moves forward. What about things that were canceled this spring, like achievement tests? Um, Some thought about maybe they can be given in the fall, but what if seniors or whatever uh, were supposed to take tests and the school year will be over and they'll be gone? Yeah, seniors typically really have already taken most of their national tests. SAT tests are offered as a junior. So for most of them, it's really end-of-course tests, and that will happen through this remote learning process. Um, so seniors should be in great place, and even our universities, community colleges, understand that there's going to be they need greater flexibility as kids enter college next fall that were this year's seniors. Um, and in conversations with them, um, that's not going to be a problem either. People seem to be pretty seamlessly saying, we've got to find a way to make this work. So does the legislature have to do anything or the governor do anything more to make sure that students are given credit for seat time, as they call it, uh, where they're actually physically in a school building that they missed uh, over the last three weeks? It would seem you know, the to governor, be... Yeah, the governor's order covered all of that, and the legislature could come back and memorialize that in legislation, but they have generally, at least in the public so far, been supportive of her efforts. I know that the Senate Majority Leader, Mike Shirky, was involved in helping you know have input into the order. And so my anticipation is they may not do that. And the state had the ability to do seat time waivers. And so they're just taking advantage, even without a, you know, a crisis, um, they had that, that ability. And I think in this case, in most, case, in most of the pieces of this, they will just let this run through the executive order without having to do 
legislative action. You mentioned the date, April 28th, a couple of minutes ago, uh, as a time for what? Schools have to start at that time at the latest? or that, Yeah, that is the, the latest that they would start offering remote education to all of their students. But some might be doing it right now on a voluntary basis or just doing it yep. because they've yep, put absolutely. it in place. Some of, some of the districts already had started on their own and didn't, weren't, were trying not to miss a beat. Others had been doing more supplemental practice right now. Um, some was even being done just at the teacher level. Um, but as far as unified, working under a plan, here's how all kids will be treated and taught, um, that has to happen by April 28th. Do you see what's happened right now with the coronavirus challenge changing the way schools operate going forward, starting with the, let's say, 2021 academic year? Like some people are talking about the school year maybe is going to be started in August rather than in September and other developments like that. What do you think? I I do think this event is going to have a pretty long tail. I think things are going to change in lots of walks of life, not just in education. I think uh, the executive order left open the idea that schools could come back earlier in August, maybe early August, to do any remediation and catch up so that kids really are ready for school. I think we'll also see uh, our state being one once we know how to do remote learning as we get into that kind of inevitable snow day situation that we have in Michigan, um, you're probably going to see more schools now having the capability to do remote learning in that space. Listen, I wish we could talk about this more, but you've done a great job of summing up a very complex subject. Don Watruba, Executive Director, Michigan Association of School Boards. Thank you for being our guest, Don Watruba. Thank you. Be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and this time we have got a genuine classroom teacher. She is Ann Jacoby Russo. She is a veteran teacher of 20 years at Holt High School, teaching film and English literature to juniors and seniors Ann Jacoby Russo, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Now, I want to ask you, uh, what was your reaction when schools were shut down in the middle of March by Governor Gretchen Whitmer, and what has happened since, and what do you see happening going forward? You can just start talking. Okay. Um, It was definitely surreal when uh, we were there that week at school. Um, All of us, including the students, were a little bit on edge and felt like we would actually return from our spring break, which would have been the 13th coming up um, because next week's our spring break. But um, the students were great. The staff was great. Uh, Administration was amazing at trying to just, you know, make decisions and not stress us out more than we were. Um, But initially we were told we would not be required to do any distance learning It would just be an extended break where we could keep in touch with our students and just kind of formatively assess assignments we had planned um, from home while they're on Google Classroom or, you know, messaging us. But um, now that we obviously are not returning, we're all kind of scrambling to figure out the best way to communicate with our students, especially the at-risk students, um, 
who don't who don't have regular uh, means of you know access to internet and everything. Um, and it's 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 been an interesting uh, 24 hours actually with a lot of my colleagues. We've had Zoom meetings. We've been messaging and texting and just trying to figure out the best way to proceed with um, how we're going to assess our students, but also keep their mental and emotional well-being at the forefront. Um, that's really the conversation that we're having more often than, you know, what test are they going to take or how are we going to modify this, this unit, this book that we plan to read and discuss with our students in an online format. And Jacoby, and Jacoby Russo, let me let, let me we'll yeah let me let me interrupt and just mention uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer announced this week obviously that school buildings will remain closed between yes. now and the end of the academic year, but um, she indicated she expects online learning to go forward. And I understand your school superintendent put out a memo this week, you know, charting a path forward. I mean. Every school district apparently is going to have to come up with a plan, and you've got until April 28th to put it into effect to start things running again online through the end of the academic year. Do you have any idea what the timeline is for Holt? Because that plan that you come up with has got to be approved by, I think, the Ingham County Intermediate School yeah. District, and then if that is approved, then you can start. So what, what is the plan? So at this point, we have um, our curriculum leaders, our administration, and our um, department chairs. They actually had a meeting yesterday, um, an initial meeting that went as well as can be expected. Um, We have tentatively decided to create within the department um, a few standards for particular units, whether they're common units across the board with all of, say, our English 9 teachers. Um, they'll be focusing on um, standards that they want to address before the end of the year. And our leadership has trusted um, our our department chairs and our departments to kind of figure that out together and um, decide if that's going to look like a Google Classroom assignment for students who do have access, um, but also potentially be hard copies that can be mailed home for students who do not have access. So um, it's definitely a flexibility uh, issue right now as far as creating these uh, these plans that will work both as, um, you know, packets that are sent home to students who can, you know, write on them um, and actually, like, hold them in their hands versus, you know, the kind of nebulous Google Classroom aspect of online learning. Well, do you see yourself sitting in a classroom at Hold High School, let's say, beginning at the latest April 28th and interfacing visually, let's say, on screen with your students sitting at home? Do you see that or is it a totally different kind of concept or setup that, um, that I'm talking well, about? Well, a lot of us um, are new to Google Classroom, but I have several colleagues who've been using it for years. It's always been an option at Whole, and it's been um, pressed a little more in the last couple of years. And I actually created my first Google Classrooms for my film and English classes this past couple of weeks. And um, it's, it's very easy, and I just sit at home. Uh, we will not be returning to the buildings as far as I know. Uh, we'll just be working from home, and we'll have probably schedule 
maybe some Zoom meetings. My daughter, um, who's in Holt Public School, she had a, her first band class with her band, several other students the other day through Zoom. Um, and it's very workable. And I think the teachers I work with who are struggling with figuring out how to create online portals, they'll just probably opt for the hard copies of whatever unit is created. And that's okay, too. How many students do you have in each one of the classes you teach, film and English? Uh, I know you teach several of them. Yep, I have 105 students throughout the day. So I have 42 seniors and 63 juniors. So when you do a Google Classroom and you're sitting at home, are you kind of going from one-to-one person in an individual class? Let's say it's on film. And can the other students hear what you're saying to the student you're talking to or not? It depends on the settings. So um, I could set up a um, discussion through Zoom or another um, kind of meeting platform if I chose to, where all students would be uh, would have the choice to join it. Um, and then I could mute, I could literally teach my students like a lecture for however long I chose to with all of their um, their screens or their devices muted. So it could be, you know, a lecture class and they're just listening, um, which is what some colleagues at MSU have been doing. Um, or it could be more interactive where, you know, you raise your hand if you have a question and then I unmute and everyone can hear a conversation we're having. Um, so we're all kind of learning informally through family and friends um, that we Zoom with how to interact with these platforms. But I actually am really kind of excited about it. I will honestly only be teaching if we go live April 27th. Um, my my seniors are scheduled right now. Their last day is May 22nd. So I'm looking at less than a month of time that I'll actually be interacting with my seniors. And I'm going to try to make the best of it and, and create some fun assignments. Other than seniors, uh, the juniors and sophomores, do they continue on, do you think, past the end of May? Are they going to extend the school year in hold or not? So we have, we're on a hybrid year-round schedule as it is, and our last day is scheduled um, for June 12th. So we tend to go longer um, than most school districts because of our, our unique schedule. But I absolutely am excited to work with my, my kids, my juniors, too. Oh, that's fantastic. Listen, I wish we could talk about this longer. There's so many questions to ask, but you've done a great job of explaining what it's like to be a teacher in a school in lockdown and going forward and all your students. So thank you very much. And Jacoby Russo, Holt High School teacher of English and film. Thank you, Ann. Thanks so much for having me. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we're going to switch gears a little bit here and talk about another aspect of the coronavirus pandemic and the state's attempts to respond to it. And this is really at the crux of it, and this is the executive order that the governor, Gretchen Whitmer, issued back on March 10th, declaring a state of emergency in Michigan. And we are very fortunate to have with us former chief judge of the Michigan Court of Appeals, Bill Whitbeck, who is a longtime 
governmental employee and political appointee, political and governmental operative and judge. He was a key aide to George Romney, William Milliken, and John Engler, three governors. Uh, He was elected chief judge of the Court of Appeals after having been appointed initially and reelected several times to the Court of Appeals. He also served at one time as the state employer, and he also sat on the Law Revision Commission. And I want to welcome you, Judge Bill Whitbeck. Good morning, Bill. Pleasure to be with you. Well, let me ask you, uh, the governor issued this executive order back on March 10th. It was supposed to last 28 days. And then there's some question about whether the legislature has to renew it or approve the renewal of this or whether she could just continue to renew it as she sees fit. Now, since then, the governor said this week and did this week issue another executive order, which she said starts the clock running again on a state of emergency in Michigan. And she says, I don't think the legislature really has to come back and meet at all at this point. But if they do, I'd like them to approve extending this executive order for 70 days. Now, the legislature, and it's controlled by Republicans, have indicated so far that they're not too happy about such a lengthy extension. 70 days, they think, is too long. So I'd just like to ask you, Bill Whitbeck, from the vantage point of the judiciary and as somebody who's been in state government for a long time and who was at one time the state employer, how do you look at the situation right now? Well, preliminarily, Bill, I think uh, you could draw something of analogy, I suppose, to a a game of chess. I mean, you've got this... uh, back and forth between uh, the governor as the executive exercising executive authority and the legislature exercising legislative authority uh, you know, and chess uh, like politics is is adversarial and and very competitive I, I know some good chess players and they're very competitive I'm not sure though that the average person in in Max Barr which I haven't been to uh, <laughs> recently, uh, is terribly concerned about this kind of chess game. But assuming for the moment there is some uh, interest in it and it is important, uh, then the question uh, that I, I think you've asked me to answer is, suppose this ended up in court. Uh, who do you, as an individual former judge, uh, think might win? And my answer is, I think the governor wins, uh, and I say that really for for several reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, and in the interest of first disclo- full disclosure, uh, I've known the Whitmer family for for a long, long time, and I've known Governor Whitmer for almost all of that time. Uh, when I came back from the army years ago, uh, the Whitmers were kind enough to give me their couch to sleep on when I. <laughs> was looking for a place to live. So I've, you never I've known them that. for a long time. And I can say uh, with no qualification that Gretchen Whitmer is a very competent lawyer. 
Uh, now, that doesn't mean that she's writing these executive orders. Generally, governors don't do that. They have working stiffs uh, to do that sort of thing. But start with that proposition that you've got a very competent lawyer uh, at the head of the executive branch. And secondly, she has, I think, uh, rather adroitly cited three sources of authority for what she has done. Uh, the first is, I'll do it in reverse order, uh, there's an act that was passed in 1976, um, and I'm going to call that the new act. It's very detailed. It gives uh, page after page of instructions about how to handle uh, public uh, emergencies uh, of, of this sort or of any sort. But there's another source that she also cites, and that goes back to 1945. And that's what we, I'm going to call that the old act. Uh, that's what, in the old days, we commonly referred to as the riot act. Uh, it's very brief, but it very, very strongly uh, vests the governor uh, with um, uh, wide-sweeping emergency powers. And finally, there's the Constitution, uh, which he also cites, uh, that uh, uh, vests the executive power uh, uh, in the governor of the state. Now, normally, the new act, which, as I said, is very, very detailed, would, uh, under common rules of statutory construction, would trump the more general provisions of the old act. Can't trump the Constitution, but would trump the general provisions of the old act. But there's a catch, and it's one that I, uh, I haven't seen too much reference to, and that is that at the end of the new act, the 1976 act, the very detailed act, there's language that says that this act, I'm going to quote it, shall not limit, modify, or abridge the authority of the governor to uh, proclaim a state of emergency pursuant to Act 302, that's the old act, or exercise any other power vested in him uh, note the, the masculine uh, pronoun, but under the Constitution. So there's a specific exception in the new act for anything that limits the governor's power under the old act. And specifically, I would say that exception uh, really uh, obviates to a great degree the so-called 28-day rule that's contained in the new act. Now, that's a perhaps overly complicated explanation. The bottom line is, if this thing goes to court, and I sincerely hope it does not, because I don't think anybody benefits from that, uh, but if it goes to court, I think the governor wins. Well, surely the legislature, the majority leader Mike Shirky and House Speaker Lee Chatfield are aware of these statutes. They've got lawyers, too. They know that Public Act 302 of 1945, that's the so-called Riot Act. You know, that's interesting. There really is a Riot Act. There really is. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the other one, the new one, as you call it, I think it's 390, yep. um, and then the constitutional language. They're aware of that. So why do they think they have any basis for opposing what she wants to do? And why do they think they can succeed? What could they possibly do? Well, I think uh, there are probably two bases, uh, both of which are logical. The first is that uh, whether Democrat or Republican really doesn't matter. 
the legislative leaders of whatever party is in control will always seek to protect the prerogatives of the legislature and not to set a precedent that can later come back to haunt future legislatures. So that's, that's a very legitimate motive, to be jealous of uh, the prerogatives of the, uh, and I don't use the word jealous, uh, per, uh, I don't use it uh, as a prescriptive term, uh, but to be jealous of the prerogatives of the legislature. Second, what I've just detailed, you know, is frankly a fairly complex analysis, and we haven't had a lot of time, there are no, there's no case law on this, none whatsoever. Uh, we haven't had a lot of time uh, uh, nor have, uh, have the lawyers working on this to work their way through. So, yeah, listen. Uh, let's stop well, for right those there. Two reasons let, let, I can see judge, why, uh, judge, let's uh, again, stop. whether Democrat or Republican, why judge, uh, legislative leaders we gotta, start we gotta to take a break. Judge, we got to take a break. Let, let's let's hold it right there, and we'll come back and pick up on that in a minute. Stay tuned. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have on the other line with us, as you know from listening to the last segment, longtime Court of Appeals Judge William Whitbeck, Bill Whitbeck, who was for a long time also Chief Judge of the Court of Appeals. He was a key aide. Before that, to three Michigan governors, George Romney, William Milliken, and John Engler. And he was also at one time the state employer. And we've been talking about the executive order that Gretchen Whitmer issued on March 10th and then trumped, you could say, sorry to use that word, this week with a second executive order declaring a state of emergency in Michigan, which allows her, by the way, to issue a whole bunch of other executive orders on other things that must be done or should be done in the face of combating the coronavirus. And whether or not the legislature has any role in opposing or supporting the governor's action. And she's asked, actually, for a 70-day extension of the state of emergency. And when we left off, Judge Whitbeck was explaining why the legislature would feel that it has a role in this process. First, he said the legislature is trying to stand up for itself, trying to stand up for the legislative branch, saying you know, we are very zealous of our prerogatives under the Constitution. We think attention must be paid to us. And then secondly, he said there are some other reasons why they would want to take it up. And why don't you go into those, Judge Whitbeck? Well, if if I were representing the legislature, and uh, subsequent to this interview, I doubt that I will be, <laughs> uh, I would point out, that, wait a minute, uh, that's all well and good, Judge Whitbeck. You say, you know, the new act has this this exception that uh, says nothing in the act shall limit the governor's powers under the old act. But she sent a letter in which she specifically talked about 
the 28-day restriction. So she's opened this door. Uh, and one could even, perhaps even argue she's waived uh, the, the idea that her power cannot be limited uh, under, uh, under the old act or under the Constitution. I mean, that would be one of the arguments I would make, something akin to waiver. Um, I don't know how strong that argument is, uh, but uh, I've learned the hard way, uh, both as a, an advocate and then as a judge. There are always two sides to every argument. Uh, and you, uh, a good lawyer can can argue usually either side of an interesting case like this one. Well, let let me ask you this: What do you see? I know you're not in the prediction business, particularly in a particular uh, very complicated situation like this. But if you were the legislature and you didn't like the idea of the governor being able to extend her executive order uh, declaring a state of emergency for seventy days. And you're meeting next Tuesday, even when the governor says, you know, you really don't have to meet and you shouldn't meet. She's concerned about their health and safety, she maintains. And they're going to have to be delicate about this, by the way, the way they make that happen, distancing themselves on the Senate and House floor, coming in in platoons over time, uh, leaving the roll call vote board open. They're going to have to go through some very strange maneuvers to do it. And let's say they feel so strongly about doing something that they do it anyway. They meet next Tuesday, April 7th, and they want to cut her length of time order back. What do you think they would do or might do? And if they did it, how do you think she might react? Uh, the first part, I could just vote for it. Obviously, these are just my opinions. But uh, were I to be asked, uh, I would say to the legislative leaders, meet uh, on the date that you've scheduled, very briefly, pass a concurrent resolution saying we extend for 28 days, period. Essentially, in this chess game, then, uh, the next move would be up to the governor. And, and there, I'm not sure what she might do. Uh, she might say, um, and putting it uh, in diplomatic terms, um, the hell with your 28 days. Uh, I've got full power under the old act. I'm, uh, I'm going forward uh, for as long as need be. She might say that. Uh, or she might take a more diplomatic attack uh, and say, well, fine, you know, I'll, I'll, but I'll be back to you again if I need be. Uh, hopefully... Uh, I again, I emphasize that while I'm using this chess game analogy, I don't really see it as a chess game. It's not a game at all. Uh, it's it's a very very serious matter, and I hope they work it out such that uh, neither of these contingencies arise. Well, she could say or think to herself. Let's put it this way: uh, you know, I could damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. I've got the law and the Constitution on my side, and I'll just extend this 70 days whether they want to or not and let them challenge me in court if they want to. She could do that, but she may realize, look, i got to deal with these people over the next uh, nine months anyway, this particular legislature, and then a lot of them even after that. I've got a four-year term extending through the end of 2022 
I could win, quote-unquote, on this one issue, but I could so infuriate them that they might make things even more difficult for me than they would otherwise. And so she may want to play nice and negotiate with them and come up with something that they both could agree to, right? That's exactly right, and frankly, I hope that's what happens. I mean, that's what makes our system work. Uh, it, it For the purists, and I'm not one of them, uh, you know, the idea is, well, there are, there are no compromises. Uh, uh, those, I think, uh, those views uh, are, the, are the views of someone who's never watched the interaction between the executive and the legislature, never seen how a bill gets passed, never seen how the language gets written. And it is perpetually and always a series of compromises. And frankly, by and large, it works pretty well in that process. Over a period of time, how do you see the coronavirus pandemic playing out here in Michigan? And what do you think the information you've seen means in terms of its future? Well, um, two things. Uh, I am concerned, and I, I think many are, that in constructing these models on which we seem to be relying, uh, as the experts always point out, I'm the furthest thing from a statistician. I mean, I can't balance my own checkbook. But I do understand that models, any model, depends on at least a couple things, the assumptions that underlie them and uh, the data that go into it. On the national level, you know, I think a lot of people, myself included, again, you know, shrouded in ignorance, are very skeptical about the information coming out of China. Uh, I'm very skeptical that they may be underplaying now both the extent and uh, uh, the duration of the coronavirus. So on the one hand, I'm concerned that things may be worse than uh, the model uh, predicts since we're relying in part on Chinese data that I think may be very questionable. On the other hand, uh, I noticed in Michigan that we went along at a fairly normal level, and then there was this kind of jump, very significant jump, in the, the data of cases reported of coronavirus. I'm not terribly confident uh, that the data that comes out of the various data sources in Michigan uh, is all that reliable. Uh, I point, uh, because of my own specific experience, uh, to the problems uh, that arose with the data coming out about Flint. First, about the, the blood levels in Flint, which were significantly underreported, and the State Department of Health and Human Services downplayed Dr. Mona uh, Atisha's uh, data and then later admitted that those data were right. And secondly, the fact that the extent of the Legionnaires virus outbreak in 2014 was, and I'm going to use a pretty strong term, was suppressed, uh, not by the current leadership that was under the Snyder administration and a different director of the Department of Health and Human Services. But I know that uh, the information about that outbreak uh, was, was not made public for almost a year. Okay, so we got an earful from Judge William Whitbeck, former Chief Judge of the Court of Appeals. You did a great job of going through all the main constitutional and legal and statutory 
controversies that we are embroiled in right now about the governor's executive order on state of emergency. Thank you, Judge Whitbeck. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. We'll be back next week.